the Sunday Morning Linux Review with Mary Tomich, Tom Lawrence, and Tony Beavis as the Beaver. And this is episode 275. I heard Linux. Yeah. <laughs> so to be a little trendy, we were talking about uh, with a Yanny versus Laurel kind of thing. So what did you guys hear? I didn't listen to it. Oh, you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I heard Yanni. I heard Laurel. Hmm. Oh, boy. But it was, it was a really bad computerized voice. That's... And... I, I mean, I heard it in the background, and I'm like, it just sounds broken. That was... <laughs> I heard my kids were playing, and I'm like, that sounds broken to me, so I don't really have an opinion. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Anyway, this is Tony Bemis. Phil Parada. And Tom Lawrence. And uh, so Mary's not here today. She's not feeling well, but uh, we will carry on without her somehow. Somehow. Uh, all right. So, uh, Phil, so how is it going? I, I am attempting to catch up on sleep. Obviously not right now because I'm talking. Uh, I've been doing uh, client projects um, for the past three, four weeks. Um, late into the night, uh, that's, that's all finished and over with so I can have my life back. Um, lots of Amazon and Terraform work, um, Ansible, and making HA proxy and KeepAliveD load balancers. Bunch of fun, but I'm done with it. Nice. Um, other than that, uh, new house is great. I trapped a raccoon and had to release it this morning. Ooh. But uh, such is life on the server farm. <laughs> yeah. How about you? Uh, doing good. It's been a month since I've been on the show. Uh, you know, I, I noticed you weren't at on the show last time, right? I was. I was out of state for uh, my actual job. Uh-huh. Um, I got. I got called away at uh, the last moment um, to go do data center work. So you missed PenguinCon also. Yes, I did. That was sad. Yeah, I was. I was bummed out about it, but I had a good reason. My. So did you, obviously. But uh, my wife was graduating, so. That's awesome. I had to go. Yeah, thanks. Um, anyway, so uh, my last month, I am getting ready to go to China. Ooh. Uh, so I'll be, I'm going to be teaching at a university in China for two weeks. Uh, and um, so I'm messing around with like trying to set up like a VPN thing. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> the Great Firewall will hear you. No, yes, no. <laughs> and stop you. Yeah, uh, and so I've been working on that. I got to uh, upgrade to my internet at home. Oh, I have 500 meg down Sweet. at my home internet. Yeah, yes. and 50 meg up. Who's your provider for that? Wow. Yep. And what do you pay? Uh, if you don't mind me asking, it's no. $69 a month. And for 89, you can get gigabit now. Yeah. I need to get off Comcast. You probably can't. I'm I, sorry. Mm. We'll look. I mean, I don't know if it's in your area or not, but. Uh, it's perhaps we can start a wisp and we could use your place as the <laughs> basis for this. That would be the day. Yes. Sorry. The real server I happen to have talked to a person on Saturday about that, Wait, that, you know, I forget what's a wisp, a wireless internet service provider. Oh yeah. Yes. So I, I, I he finally reached out to me. So awesome. All right. <laughs> That's a whole nother project that it will get sidebarred, but yes, we, <laughs> we talked. I told them it's plausible and possible, and it's affordable. So. Very, very cool. Mm. Very cool, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, I got that going. It's 50 meg up, and that's really what I was looking for, you know, because I could have gotten gigabit that you're talking about, Yeah. but it's also 50 meg up. So yeah. it would have been no difference. I'd be paying 20 bucks extra a month. Um, um, so I, I just went with that. And, you know, with being cable, you know, it's not always a 500 meg connection. You know, I, I'll check my speed in the middle of the day, and it'll be like 300 meg, which is, you know, that's, what, 60% of what they're supposed to be giving me. But eh, 300 meg, you know, I'm not too worried about that. Um, how, or Did you check it? Is it varying up and down on the speed, or? Mm, it's just, uh, you know, it's a shared medium, right? So everybody else it's on. You know, but it's, uh, you know, during the day, I'll hit like 300 meg, and at night, I'll hit 500 meg. I'm noticing um, something interesting is it, uh, we have a client that for the, their business class that had gigabit, and we're seeing speed variations, a lot of them. We're mm. talking from site to site. If I try three different sites, I get three different results, so I'm trying them all at the same time. 
Like I'm trying this one, then the next one, then the next one, like back to back to back, not actual simultaneously. But I'm getting results that range from 600 meg to 987 from different uh, speed tests, including mm. the wide open west one. The wide open west one was consistently slower, which I thought was even stranger. Yeah, that's what I noticed too. The Google one kept showing me faster. The wide open west one was slower, and then uh, Ukalua or whatever the other one, that's one that was uh, more consistent on the speed, but it kept showing only 760. I wonder, though, if there's just some bandwidth routing issues of getting a gig through those providers, because like there's a series of hops and undoubtedly QoS and throttling that might be happening in between, so speed tests, once you get to that level of speed, can possibly become inaccurate. Yeah. The internet's fast, though. I won't lie. Like, I downloaded stuff, and I got it really quick, so I was, I was overall, I was happy with the performance, but yeah. I remember my days of working in the data center. Uh, I used to open up Steam and download as many games as I could, and they would finish before I could right-click the next game and download it. Yeah. And that was that was a thing of beauty. Yes. Yeah. My, my first experience was with a T1. That was so awesome. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all had dial-up, and then same thing. I had access to uh, T1 when we got that. Because first we had a, a, a fractional T1, then we got a full T1, mm. and it was, like, amazing. This was, like, 1999, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, when you go from, uh, from what, 30, 33K? 33K. <laughs> or 36.3, whatever it is, and, and then to 1.5. I know. It was just night and day. We had yeah. 56K internet until uh, April of 2006 when I finally convinced my parents that, hey, we need to get something that's not <laughs> three kilobytes a second on a good day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's about that same time is when I got my first DSL connection. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I never imagined then that I was going to be having like 500 meg in my house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a difference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I went to B-Sides. Uh, Detroit this week. Oh, yeah, I see yeah. that new shirt. This is yep. actually the shirt from two years ago. Ah. The, my, the new one uh, is actually probably still in my trunk. I forgot to get it out. Uh, but uh, but it was fun. I went to Converge and B-Sides. So it's technically Twitch. two different com- conferences, but they kind of like meld together. It's yeah. all at the same place. And I saw Mike there. Yep, you seen Mike. Did you uh, um, watch Johnny Christmas presentation? I don't think so. He actually had a really good presentation because um, he was a keynote at PenguinCon. And I, bad oh. timing on Tom's part not to schedule uh, events to so I could attend B-Sides. <laughs> but uh, Johnny Christmas is famous first for the, NS, uh, the TSA key. Remember when the TSA said, we have a universal key. Here's a picture of it that will open all the locks on all the suitcases. And everyone says, hey, do you know what you can do with that? And Johnny Christmas used to make keys that were copies of them. That's what, how he got to, That was one of his claims to fame. He's actually a really nice guy and a really great uh, speaker and hacker. Uh, super nice guy. But he, he was uh, keynoting there as well. Oh, I did. I think I did see it. He was the keynote for B-Sites, if I remember right. Yeah. He, he keynoted yeah. for B-Sides. Yeah, I did see him talk then. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty good. How to hack a company. My, my favorite one was uh, when he talks about it. I won't say it on our show here, but it's uh, F and then the name of your company. Turns out is the best password. He goes, it's not even in the rainbow tables. He goes, because there's too many company names. He goes, if you want to hack a company, just try putting F and then the company name. F, U, and <laughs> he, goes, he goes, people, he goes, I learned something about people. They really hate their jobs, so they use that as their password. Sometimes it's F this company, and he goes, then company name. So he had a whole list of examples, and he says, these have now become the more popular passwords. That's amazing. <laughs> That's what he said. He goes, I didn't realize people hated their jobs that much because I like what I do. <laughs> I'd, never, <laughs> I'd never make that my password. <laughs> it was a good presentation on uh, kind of that overview of, of social engineering your way into companies. And um, he also talked about the pain in the butt that two-factor is. He goes, honestly, he goes, a lot of hackers, you see two-factor, they just move on to the next client that doesn't have it. He goes, it's honestly, he goes, that's kind of the trend in the market going on. Oh, two-factor, it's really hard to get around. Uh, we have to really, really want you to even attempt that. So usually it just gets skipped. Like, oh, we found two-factor. I really like when uh, applications walk you through setting up two-factor uh, as soon as you sign up. I think that's a nice um, ease of life or uh, usability uh, feature that can be built in and just increases security for, for a user. Yes, and as long as they're using TOTP, 
I yelled at the people from a certain company when I was at the build conference because I said, what were you guys thinking of implementing your own? And they have now abandoned a project. And I'm like, I don't know that I had any influence on it, but I hope <laughs> that, like someone, like they wanted to come up with their own two-factor with a separate app. And I'm like, I don't want to load another app. TOTP is a standardized protocol. It doesn't require internet. Your app requires both internet and a stupid app on my phone to log in each time. So right. <laughs> that TOTP. only uses your app. <laughs> time, what is it? Uh, time, like... time uh, something. Time-based one-time password. Time-based yeah, one-time password. Yeah. Time-based is one word? Time, it's hyphenated. All right. Yeah. All right. We'll go with that then. <laughs> yeah. So basically, it's it's that little like code. It uh, used to be, you know, all the RSA key fobs had them, right? The, and so you have to type in a, a code that only lasts for thirty seconds or something, and everything's synchronized. So that's what the time based part is. Uh, yeah. Though it's really good. Uh, like you said, it's not connected to the internet. So the only way to hack it is to get the not the only way. Uh, it's it's hard because you have to get the um, the initialization um, algorithm, um, and There's that's a, not transmitted every time you try to log in. I have a video I did on how the TOTP algorithm works because someone wrote a Bash script for it, so you can put the keys in Bash and have it kick out the uh, numbers. Hmm. I've used that I think uh, with with the YubiKey just playing around some years ago. Yeah, and that's why I did, I did it as kind of a demo. Um, it's one of those things that I don't know that this is a great idea, but if you ever needed to keep an extra copy of your keys on some server somewhere, you technically could script them all into Bash and have it just print all your keys on the screen. So, like, I lost my phone, but I need all my TOTP keys. I could log into some secret server somewhere, run this tool, and it would list all my TOTP keys so I can get logged into things. I, debated about that. We'll not say whether or not this server exists or where it exists, and that's it. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, but his talk, Johnny Christmas, his talk at uh, uh, Converge or B-Sides was uh, uh, yes, you're an imposter, now get back to work. Yeah. So it, it's talking about the whole imposter syndrome and how you think that you're not good enough for the job that you're being paid for, or somebody's going to find out that you don't know what you're doing. Or, uh, and he basically said that, you know, everybody learns on the job, right? And so get over it and keep going and learn and do the job. Let's yeah. just hope that it's not Google that tells me I don't know what I'm doing because I already know that. That's why I'm asking Google. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so my secret is safe that sometimes I screw up subnets when I'm doing CIDR notation back and forth. <laughs> Even though I do advanced networking videos and it can explain firewall rules in detail. It's okay, I have to look up IP table syntax every time I use it. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those things like I just get, there, there's something about that that won't stay in my head. Like it will for the video and I can explain it and then someone will be like, is this slash 32 slash 16? I'm like, once you go any of the ones besides the commons, like slash 24s and slash 16s, I forget. We can't all be Rain Man with, with cider notation. I do have right. one staff member who is Rain Man. <laughs> he, he has a weird trick because the clients have asked about this. How does Steve always know our password? Does he look it up before he comes here? I was like, no, Steve has every password for everyone in his head, past, past and present for every one of our clients. <laughs> he jokes that he does not use our password management system because he simply types the passwords, even if they're higher entropy. So this, this secret password server that may or may not exist, it's really just Steve. Just Steve's head. <laughs> we just put it in Steve's head. <laughs> All right. So, Tom, any oh. projects you've been working on? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, uh, more. Um, we moved over everything from top to bottom over to the XCP version of Zen. And uh, what they've done a great job of is allowing it to replace Zen as in I can install it. And I have like 30 virtual machines for some reason. Um, most of them are lab. Only 10 are production. The rest are lab things I play with for demos, for YouTube videos. Uh, but it imported all of them. It imported all the iSCSI settings. Uh, and it imported um, my Tom's LAN of Zen, which LAN of Zen, obviously play on words, is because Zen server has the ability in the networking uh, to create sandboxed 
uh, uh, host-only networks. So that's a feature that's built into Zen Server. Citrix supported it, but the turns out the XTP and G people don't officially support it, but it imported fine. So I talked to them about it, and they're adding this support uh, for creating them. You can use the ones that were imported from Zen from Citrix, but you can't create them from their tool, but you can create them from the command line. Hmm. Um, what those are is my ability to take a server, and I want I sandbox, for example, a Windows server for a VPN video I did. And what I want is absolutely no network devices other than the Windows box so I can watch the noise created by Windows. Because something interesting I didn't know about Windows but became an interesting side project to this is how many, the way Windows contacts the servers and how hard they are to block. It phones home a lot, all by IP, not DNS. So even if you run tools like PIA VPN on it, which wrap all the network traffic, it bypasses PIA VPN to go out because it doesn't care what you do to the network interface. The stack in the kernel goes out to hard-coded lists of IP addresses to phone home. Mm. And, but having those uh, si lockdown networks so you can see exactly what it's doing is great. That way you never have to worry about anything on the line causing you know, network noise. But uh, other than that, just the usual more YouTube videos, a lot more in-depth PF Sense videos and getting started, uh, you know, because firewalls are important. Right. <laughs> uh, I think that's it for project-wise, uh, playing with some of the Unify stuff. We've been just buried in um, actual physical infrastructure projects lately, which is good because they pay the bills so I can make more YouTube videos. I have this joy in making YouTube videos. I keep suggesting people. I, we're debating about like finding a channel sponsor because um, reality is when you look at it, sometimes it's kind of sad that like I'm like, oh, cool, this video is cool, and it's got a, thousands of views, and I'm like, oh, wait, I make $23 off that video. That's it. This just doesn't pay much. You can't get paid off YouTube until you get into the millions of views. Right. When you have like 100,000 people watch a video, you make like 30 bucks and I spent three hours making the video and it's an hour long video. And <laughs> speaking of making videos, uh, Tom helped me out over the weekend, um, with some Caden live tips and tricks. And Oh yeah. I, I was trying to put together a couple different video clips and do some splicing in iMovie on my wife's laptop. And that was a nightmare. 300 megs of initial import file kicked out a nine gig export. Oh, and Caden Live did the exact same thing, not only quicker, but uh, it was it was a pleasure to use, and it gave me a small file like I had, like I had expected. Hmm. Wow! Yeah. So Caden Live is definitely. Um, I need to do some more videos on that. I did that talk at Penguin Con, so I forgot about. That. So at Penguin Con, we have. Uh, we talked a little bit about PenguinCon at PenguinCon. Me and Mary did, uh, but yeah, that I, my talk at PenguinCon was about open source video editing so and someone had a stupid point but they're right is they were upset because when you do i showed how to do a multiple camera edit that was my demo and uh, someone's like well you can't put a border around it and i'm like i guess you can't and they're like well every, even microsoft movie editor has a border around it and i'm like which is interesting that they don't have that option in caden live but we know what they do have the ability to do object motion tracking and everything else and mm. all kinds of advanced features, but they do lack the ability just to click a border around a <laughs> thing. <laughs> Maybe next year uh, we'll be able to have uh, the year of the Linux desktop, but until then, mm, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Caden Life sucks on anything, but uh, someone commented in our chat room that the uh, Caden Life's bad on Windows. Yeah, it's horrible on Windows. So <laughs> it's Windows like, is bad on Windows. Windows is bad on Windows. <laughs> Yeah. All right, that was about it for me, though. That's <laughs> All right. So I guess we're going to go on to feedback. We want to hear from you. Call 7... And I cut off the phone number because we haven't fixed that yet. Uh, so you can either email us at uh, show at smlr.us or we have a contact forum on smlr.us or, I don't know, get a, hit us on one of the, the socials. Yeah, one of the socials. We maybe should. Uh, we should we, set up a page with a all our base. social media. Yeah, or a keybase. I started playing with keybase. I oh, I'm still learning it. It's pretty what cool. What is it? Keybase. I think you added me a yeah, couple days ago. I did. Oh, is that a social platform? Yeah, kind of. It's an encrypted platform for communication. It's actually really clever. I'd like to mm. do. I don't understand it very well, but I know someone who works. I indirectly know someone who actually works on development teams. So it might be fun to. Uh, Get some we should morning. get them on. Yeah, like it, it's an interesting project. I like it in con on concept. It does uh, 
you can you can put up your GPG or PGP key. Yeah. Um, and then others can find you, and you can uh, send encrypted messages back and forth through their web application or their command line tool or their phone thing. Um, you can also store encrypted files uh, for other people there. Mm. Now, y they let you make key the, the private key on their platform, but I wouldn't recommend that. But it is an option right. for those who don't know what to do with the private keys. But it's kind of cool. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I remember hearing about it. But I hadn't, uh, when you, you, the name seems kind of like vague, you know, Keybase. Yes. Keybase at IO. Yeah. But yeah. It, it, and it, it doesn't seem like I didn't look at it and immediately understand what it was the first time I seen it. I find people on it. I'm like, oh, they, they're on Keybase. I guess it's where keys are or something. I don't know. Like, I didn't know what the product was at all a long time ago. Like when I seen, I just seen people's names pop up on it with links. Cool. So. It's hacker cred. That's all it needs to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that I now that I signed up for it, I actually kind of like it. So. So did uh, have you guys seen any emails in the last two weeks? No. Um, yes. Yes, I have. Uh, but I'm currently pulling up my email. One moment. I mean, I think there was still. Uh, is there still talk? No, I think the last uh, email we had about passwords was from Brad, and that was right before PenguinCon. So did you guys... Was our email broken? No. Okay, that's that's the last one that I had seen. Yeah. Uh, and just remind everybody, we're on Twitter now. Uh, what's our at? Oh, yeah, that's true. I just deleted all of those. We are at SMLR underscore podcast. Right. Thank you, Mary, for creating that for us. Yeah. Except for my email now gets flooded with, hey, did you know you missed this? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Twitter likes to... Should have Mary log in and turn that off. Anyway. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know of anything I else. I don't see anything else. Cause I, I, yeah, I don't see anything. But I, I got I to gotta delete all these notifications, too. Boy, there's a lot of them. Can the you turn off the crap notifications and get Twitter notifications? The, uh, Are those the, weather the gets same good. thing, though? Yes. <laughs> we'll just go with yes. Yeah. Anyway, the weather gets nice, so less people are on their computers, and so we get less feedback. I'm going to go with that thought instead of Same nobody likes us anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we're moving on to distros. Distro Fever, where we cover the latest hot distro releases and news. Right. Latest hot distro releases and news. Distros. So I'll bring up Proxmox. Um, even though I didn't like it, I know there's a lot of love for it. Uh, Proxmox being the uh, virtual environment. I think it's built. Is it built on KVM? It says uh, KVM. It also does LXC for Linux containers. Um, yeah. And you can do uh, QEMU too. Okay, yeah, and it does. Uh, it's built on ZFS as well, so for storage, which it has mm -hmm. all the features I like. I just thought it was very command line driven, and uh, that means I didn't have a problem using it, but my staff did. So, because they're not all Linux people, because I actually make my my day job is fixing Windows computers, so I have a bunch of Windows uh, admins that work for me. So, <laughs> right, it was, and they play with the VMs a lot, and they like the web interface that comes with uh, there. I don't know. I got to give it a try. Plus, I did find it. Um, importing exporting VMs from different platforms less uh, easy in Proxmox versus uh, Zen server and VirtualBox, which I use for a lot of my testing. I can just go grab an OVA file and just import it in, and it works like hmm. magic. I there That's on the roadmap for Proxmox. I don't know why, because OVAs are open. That's a, that's a documented open standard. I don't know why they hmm. don't, like, I know it's on the roadmap. I guess it's just not a priority. Now, this is kind of cool. Uh, it come, The new Proxmox comes with uh, the 4.0, one five kernel. Um, it's based on Debian nine point four, and you can do uh, cloud in it. Um, so cloud in it is just like spinning up a server in Amazon or OpenStack or Google. Um, you can pass in a, a configuration file, and it will run when your server boots for the first time. So you can have a server configured 
um, oh, okay, by the nice. time you actually get into it. And that's kind of mm. nifty. Yeah. yeah. And I also say uh, there's a Let's Encrypt certificate management via their GUI. Nice. Also pretty cool. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what else we have? I switched to Pop! OS, so Mary covered that, and we talked about it at the S, uh, when we were at, we did it on, me and Mary talked about Pop! when we were on SLMLR for uh, PenguinCon, and so I took a uh, look at it and ended up formatting my laptop and saying, okay, I'm going to really try it, and I formatted my desktop about a few days later because I liked it that much, so mm. um, it's not in our uh, releases, but in terms of distro news, I did swap my distro, which is rare. I'm not a distro hopper. I don't switch a lot. <laughs> you were telling me about uh, some nifty uh, keyboard shortcuts and yes. changes to the, uh, the uh, to the windowing system yes. that, that you thought were nice. Yeah, what Pop! OS did was they um, this is this is what makes them a little bit different is they went and just polished things up a little bit because that's something Linux sometimes lacks uh, and we're command line people who uh, with most of the Linux spaces so we don't think of as much about the UI experience and I think pop OS made the UI experience better and that mm. makes me happy so I didn't realize how much I would like a few font changes and a little bit of a theme change but um, it really does help. And they also have a nice, well-documented list of shortcuts um, that are all keyboards. So you can really quickly move my windows around without touching the mouse, which becomes, I didn't think I'd use it much, but I took the time to learn them. And I'm like, okay, I now manipulate everything with the keyboard with the GUI. That is actually very, very handy. Just being able to quickly snap things back and forth and move them around. Like, okay, this is, you know, this is happy. Cool. I feel like I did when I started learning Tmux, and I can split windows and just do things around and resize them really quick with never touching the mouse. And I'm like, this is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel the same way about the graphics again in uh, Pop! OS, being able to manipulate the GUI with the keyboard. What other distros do we have here? Uh, the CentOS 7.5 update just came out. Mm. Um, there's a bunch of bug fixes in there. Um, I like running it for my own personal servers. Um, I upgraded to Ubuntu 18.04. That's been going pretty well. Nice. Mm, so, I see Linux FX. That looks, uh, that's a cool name, but it's a Brazilian distro uh, based on Ubuntu. Um, uh, so it's 9.0. I, and I, I'm surprised I hadn't heard of it before. Uh, but uh, they're based on, they're, this one is based on the 1804 LTS. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I remember hearing a talk about uh, Brazil and how their internet in and out was really bad. Hmm. So it kind of makes sense for them to have their own distro and, you know, mirrors and stuff there to be able to install. But I'm sure it's been years and things have been upgraded for them. Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, new scientific Linux. So that's out. We did a review of that a while back, didn't we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I got to meet Connie C. Yeah. Uh, at last year's PenguinCon. Yeah, Connie C. was at last year's PenguinCon. Yeah, very cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if you guys don't have anything else, then I'm going to... Yeah, nothing else on there. All right, then I'm going to move on to the news. Tech news and views. All right, so I guess uh, who wants to start? Should I let Tom start? Start with the news. All right. So we'll start with, and I thought this was interesting, and I, it, it actually turned in a little bit of an education for me. So on the Google Open Source blog, introducing Git Protocol version 2. Now, the first thing I said is, why is that on the Google blog? And then I realized that there's like a single person maintaining the Git or in charge of it, and they happen to work for Google, hmm. which turned into this controversy in the announcement on Reddit of uh, F Google type attitudes. I was like, wow. And they're like, the guy works for Google, but that apparently has some people upset. They think Google's backdooring it. I think there's a lot of people that just spin. I'm like, no, that's, yeah, we get it. We, we get it. You don't like Google, but it's still open. Yeah. Anyways, there's new Git protocol. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I thought it was just interesting, though, that Google hosts all the news for it. So Google's obviously behind it and things like that. But uh, there's some new efficiencies brought to uh, the protocol and how it works and things like that. So it's kind of kind of interesting. Definitely uh, newsworthy because it's become the kind of standard by which we compile and code things. Caden Live, new versions. 
on their way. So I've been really impressed because they've been doing all these code sprints with Caden Live to really enhance features, uh, quash bugs, and do some more enhancements. It's become like light years ahead of the other editors on Linux. So Caden Live's really jumped ahead. Um, people that want to try Caden Live, I highly recommend it, but not on Windows. I've had all kinds of problems on trying to get it to work on Windows. I've actually spent some time trying to make it work. It's a headache. Uh, I don't know if they're ever going to get better Windows support. They only do it to raise awareness for the project is how I feel. I don't mm -hmm. know what their actual sentiment is towards it, but they want more people to use it. It's a very powerful editor. But, man, one of the things we notice on Windows, for example, it takes on the same computer a lot longer, it seems like, to render anything in Windows. It just, it, it, everything is slow and pausy, and the rendering takes longer. Run the same thing in Linux, it runs fine. It's just not very well optimized in the Windows world. So I will throw out there if there's Windows users that go, they have a Windows download, I'm going to try it. Ah, uh, yeah, kind of some issues there. But the product itself, as far as on Linux, it runs wonderfully. It's gotten more and more stable with every iteration. Now, this is interesting. I like the way they worded it. Uh, congratulations to Tesla on their first public step towards GPL compliance. And this is the Software Freedom Conser uh, Conservancy. Apparently, Teslas had BusyBox in their Tesla and not had full GPL release, so they're making inroads to it. Um, it's been a lot of people, if you watch on YouTube, that have been reverse engineering, making a Tesla-less Tesla. And what they've done is reverse engineered the cars. The guy that actually, he's got this awesome taken apart Tesla and he reverse engineered all of it to figure out how a lot of it works. But they are shipping some GPL code without providing it, which is really weird for Elon. He's a pretty open source guy. Now, my only question is, can a Tesla run Doom? Of course. <laughs> they actually put some pretty powerful computers in there. So uh, they, they spend some time on YouTube and get lost in that rabbit hole of people who have reverse engineered Teslas. There's actually a lot of projects. There's a guy with a minivan, um, a Tesla minivan that Tesla doesn't make, but he used all the Tesla parts. Uh, there's a lot of people, they buy basically broken Teslas uh, and rebuild them. Ones that were caught in floods, for example, they got a bunch of them from Texas from that flood, uh, from the hurricane, and they rebuilt them. So there's there's a lot there, and Elon's pretty open about how a lot of it works, and there's a lot of reverse engineering, but they're still not GPL compliant, but they're getting there. Um, also, the software... Uh, Freedom Conservancy, these are people who spend a lot of time uh, fighting for open rights and uh, copyleft compliance. I believe they're a nonprofit uh, that becomes that needs donations to run on because these are lawyers that take the time to understand both law and software and then enforce it. Because as much as we tag things with a license, the bigger thought is who enforces that? I'm going to you know, think how hard it is that if I violate GPL 1 to figure out that I'm violating it 2 to prosecute me in it. Because it's not like there's a government body doing it. It takes a lawyer to bring forth action to be processed by the government. So consider donating uh, to the Software Conservancy. Now, speaking of that, the Linux Foundation uh, has a community data license agreement checking tool. Um, it, it helps a developer go through the list of software in their project and determine um, how exactly they can use software. I thought that that was pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, that, there's definitely some cool stuff there. Now, the Germany is leading in this. This is pretty cool. And we've been talking a little bit about this uh, here. But it's uh, open source is big win. Germany, 300,000 users shifting to NextCloud for file sharing. This comes into a little bit of the talk that uh, me and Phil and we've joined in uh, offline to about our day jobs and uh, putting everything in the cloud becomes this, you know, expensive thing and then trusting the companies that you host it um, and all the concerns that come with it. And this is uh, playing out on a global scale with them going, well, we all these big American companies like Dropbox and Microsoft want all our files and hold all of our data. And with GDPR and all that, self-hosting or spinning up servers that you are in top to bottom control of with NextCloud is got German, Germany is leading this and going, hey, let's uh, look at NextCloud. Let's host it ourselves. We can keep it all here and not some Microsoft moving a data center within our borders and saying, oh, sure, it's compliant with everything. <laughs> and, you know, so it's kind of interesting to see this move uh, that more companies are making to put everything inside of, you know, 
open source where you can view it, where you can understand where your data is, and you can be in control of it. And uh, Nextcloud is a great product. Uh, I think all of us have tried it at some level. Um, I think are you still running a Nextcloud server, Tony? I am. I yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great product. I I want to move back to it. I've gotten myself a little bit in the independency of Google Docs because it works so damn well on the phone, and that's how we use it a lot. So, um, but I want to. I, we were just talking about that too. Want to move things back over to uh, like Nextcloud? They've done such a great job and uh, great product. But we're seeing a lot a lot more moving over there. Hmm. Someone did a nice write up, and now I am trying to get better at GitHub myself. I'm I'm a horrible uh, bug reporter. I get to be friends with developers and I do things like message them on Twitter. Hey, could you add this feature? And they're like, Hey, could you post it on GitHub? And I'm like, that's a great idea. I have a GitHub and I should use it. <laughs> and, uh, and it was funny cause that was a back and forth. I recently have with another developer. They added the feature and then said, but could you post that on GitHub Tom? And they, we don't want to post it on your behalf. I'm like, I know I'm being lazy though. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I've been in my efforts to learn GitHub, and I've gotten much better at it over the last few months. Uh, someone wrote a nice guide to branching on GitHub, and I just wanted to share it because it was helpful to me to understand uh, from the command line how branching works and how to do it, and they've got a whole step-by-step -step tutorial on this. And uh, as I learn GitHub and find some of these resources, I'm going to share them with other people because other people should learn GitHub, and um, it's just it's a popular place for things to be put, and there's so many great open-source projects on there, and you know, I'm not really a coder, um, but I can understand what needs to be done occasionally. So being able to understand that I want to do this, because I, I actually, because I didn't know how to report something, I forked a project to fix it. And then I, then the guy says, I fixed the problem that you found in my project on line whatever. I'm like, oh, I probably should just, yeah. So now I understand forking, I understand branching a little better. <laughs> For a relevant XKCD, there's comic number 1597. <laughs> Let's go to AMD Ryzen 2600 and Ryzen 7 2700 benchmarks on Linux, nine-way Ubuntu CPU comparison. This is over at Foronix. Uh, the good news is, and I've seen a few people talking about this, appears that we've got really good support for Ryzen on Linux, which makes me happy because at some point I will need to upgrade my computer, uh, especially rendering all these videos. It takes lots of time. And either the Ryzen series or the Threadripper series, I haven't decided yet which I want to go with. The Threadripper, I just like the name. I like to say that I have a Threadripper. But oh, yeah, it yeah. sounds awesome. It sounds awesome. <laughs> um, but these multi-core CPUs by AMD seem to be pretty well supported and gaining better and better support for Linux in the latest kernels. And uh, the benchmarks are showing that. So they're, they're also a good value uh, return. Uh, one of the things I like that uh, Ferronix does a comparison of is your cost per watt value. Because some of these computers, I mean, you talk about them pulling four or 500 watts, that becomes a concern of are, are those watts going towards compute cycles or heat? And some of the AMD processors are actually notoriously less efficient than their Intel counterparts years ago because of that. They were just generate a lot of heat. We actually have one of the AMD, my backup server is a, uh, commercial AMD, what is, I can't remember what they called the Opteron processor. Um, it's only a plan B server, so it actually spends most of the time off, because even at idle, it uses 850 watts just to sit and hang out and not even compute anything. Wow. It is a, it just is like a blow dryer blowing out of the back of that server case. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's the backup server. I happen to have it, because it's retired, but it's good enough to run our stuff if everything goes wrong with our main server. Have you heard anything about the AMD Epic processors? Yes. I, I want to spin up a server that uses these uh, just so I can play with it. I believe Level 1, uh, the Level 1 tech group uh, has done some testing with one of them. So I'll, if I find a, a link, I'll, I'll share it with you. Because right. I'm interested in them as well. And uh, it kind of goes all hand in hand with the, because they all run on the same line of lineage, the Ryzen and Epic. They're all very tied together with the cores. Uh, so I believe the support is there. They have some specialized tiered memory support that's supposed to be really, really good. Hmm. So they've definitely got some enhancements and uh, the kernel, they're working quickly with it uh, because they, one thing my understanding is with the Epic and Threadripper is they're offering uh, much better, not just cost performance, but back to that watch performance. So data centers are looking heavy at them. So there's a lot of Linux uh, uh, demand for it. So that's pretty exciting. Malware in a snap. So most specifically your snap mm -hmm. package. Now we've, mentioned this before and this is obviously a, a major attack vector which we refer to as a pipeline attack you attack at the source you attack at the compilation of it now people were up in arms about this and i granted it is something a uh, big concern but good news is there's people that care about this and it was found 
this package was not audited for a couple reasons. And how did it get passed? Of course, you know, we got we to do the breakdown of this. Uh, this malware was found to, in as a crypto miner, but this was marked as proprietary software wrapped in a SNAP. So it was an odd package that not many people installed, and SNAP doesn't have public-facing numbers, so we don't know how many people ever did install this. Uh, but what they did was they incorporated in there. But because it was also marked under a proprietary license, they, there was no chance for a code review or audit. So this goes back to if you're going to pull things from these repositories, pull open source things because then you can do a binary comparison and make sure that, you know, with the, like the reproducible, reproducible binaries project, you can take the source and confirm that it matches the destination here of what it looks like compiled and do a, a checksum and there's auditing can be done. My understanding was this was something marked as a proprietary package that someone had created. So I, I wonder if it was more of a proof of concept for them to try to get something into the pipeline. Because once the developers discovered, they don't get to be on the developer contribution list anymore, I'm sure. So right. the init script that was bundled with the snap package had an email uh, that was my first Ferrari at protonmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess that's one way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, so they were trying to see if they could get their first Ferrari <laughs> by using a crypto miner and installing it on a bunch of people's computer. I don't think they got the Ferrari. <laughs> I don't know for sure, though. I don't know how many people installed it. But I thought it was a, it was interesting nonetheless. Now, the last thing I'm going to cover here uh, before I toss it over to you guys is packets over LAN are all it takes to trigger some serious Rowhammer bit flips. Now, granted, it does seem to... I like the pictures of a 10 gigabit card in the link that I have. Uh, but these are the modified vector of attack. So we have Rowhammer, which is exploits uh, execute card target on machines by uh, Rowhammering the CAS uh, and CAS RAS. The CAS is the column address strobing and row address strobing. The row address strobing is the way that RAM gets refreshed, and they hammer at it to determine which it, which bits are flipped which way to kind of create an image of what's in the memory so it becomes an attack vector. Well, you can throw packets over a network and do this now. Someone's working on more attack vectors for this. And I know there was another one not really, um, not in this article, but someone's found ways to do this on some of the Android by using some of the uh, video RAM to try and figure out that because GPUs will do it even faster than a CPU. So these attack vectors at the hardware level are getting scary. Uh, if you want to read about some of the uh, earlier techniques that have been uh, covered in this, Flip Feng Shui, which I just love the name, was the original paper written about it. So yeah, that yeah. that came out um, within within the last year. Yeah. Um, now there there's another one that came out right after uh, Throw Hammer. Throw Hammer, I think, was about a week and a half ago. And within the last week, there's NetHammer. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's similar to Throwhammer, and this one was found by the team that found uh, Spectre and Meltdown. Um, there's uh, three cache bypass techniques. Um, the first one, it's a kernel driver that flushes and reloads an address whenever a packet is received. Um, if you have an Intel Xeon CPU that uses Intel CAT for fast cache eviction, or an uncached memory on an ARM-based mobile device. Um, so if you have any of those uh, scenarios, then you are vulnerable to NetHammer. Um, in the setup uh, from this paper that I read, the researchers were able to induce a bit flip every 350 milliseconds just by sending UDP packets uh, to the target system. Um, this attack doesn't require any code on on the target, all you have to do is send packets over the network. Wow. That's crazy. That is nuts. Um, question, Phil, in your news, I didn't look at your news notes, do you happen to have that, uh, the Red Hat DCP attack? I do not, no. You're what, what's that one? Oh, you're not familiar with that. So apparently, there's uh, DHCP will execute code is essentially what it is. So if you have a DHCP server, oh, um, no. you can mail form things and Red Hat boxes, exclusively Red Hat, they implemented something wrong. Um, they will apparently grab that and execute it. So, so it's kind of an, like a coffee house attack because you'd be taking your Red Hat-based uh, distro to a coffee house and their DHCP server. So it's less of an internet attack, more of a local attack, but still a scary attack. So did that get through Fedora? Yeah. And I wonder if this got into CentOS. I believe... Wait, yeah. explain that again. 
the client attacks the D- no, DHCP server? No, the DHCP server hands out uh, mail foreign packets that the client then executes. Oh. With root privileges. Yes. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the that's the part I that really matters. <laughs> you aren't just executing in the user land; you've moved into root because it. Well, uh, that's the DHCP server. It needs to control the IP address of your computer, so it has to have some privilege. Thankfully, that's fixed. Um, I just looked at the uh, Red Hat uh, security page for this. It had a CVE twenty eighteen dash one 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 one. Yeah, that definitely a problem. That was uh, probably a ten out of ten. There's, you know, and there's other issues with DNS and, uh, or, DHCP. and DN- or DHCP can yeah. do. Uh, have you have you seen the uh, auto proxy stuff? Uh, oh not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's like when a, a corporation runs a proxy server, right? And then they can hand out the proxy uh, information via DHCP, uh, and it puts it through a. Um, Pack file, um, WPAD, pack file. Yep. And that WPAD file is full on JavaScript. It's just it's JavaScript, and the way Windows interprets it, it uses an ancient version of uh, Java VM or whatever yeah. the interpreter is to run it. So you can embed in the DHCP. Um, oh, that's not good. Yeah. Right. Well, it's not good if you're on Windows. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the auto-configuration proxy problems. And uh, these are kind of one-off attacks, but if you're connecting your computer to a public network of some sort, you know, the coffee house attack, you connect to a coffee house, these are all concerns. Um, most of them are mitigated in Linux. We would not execute that. But, yeah, in Windows, it's obviously a huge concern. Right. And in Windows, what really what the configuration is is the, the auto-detect proxy thing. Yeah. You want to turn that off. Uh, I mean, it, so it might... You might have a problem if you go somewhere new that if they have a proxy in the middle, then you have to go in and manually set it. But you can also avoid other attacks in other places you go to. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting one. Yeah. So what do you got on the news, Phil? I've got uh, Phil's Video Game Corner. Um, I've I've been... Uh, trying to play League of Legends with my wife, but since she runs uh, she runs Mac and we've got a Windows gaming computer in the house, I wanted to play on Linux because why not get the same game running on all the platforms? So first I tried through Wine, and that was about as much of a nightmare as it usually is. Yep. Then I tried play on Linux, but the installer kept... Uh, crashing on me no matter how many guides i followed yep so i found this tool called lutris l-u-t-r-i-s yes at lutris.net and it it uses wine under the hood but it was so simple to set up and install and then i could open up steam uh from a previous wine install and it would import all of my uh windows games into the lutris uh application Mm. and all i have to do is just click things and they run and i was playing games with my wife last night and it was great yes i've i've seen lutris and i it's the only one at work because play on linux was just like you said why does all these things break why do these guides not work i'm aggravated all the time (laughs) um lutris was super super simple that's cool um and then uh i read i read an article yesterday um Zero A.D., the uh, the ancient historical um, RTS game. Uh, they've just released Alpha Number Twenty Three, uh, uh, subtitled Ken Wood. Um, Ken Wood was a chief designer of Zero A.D. Uh, before he passed away. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, this game has been in development since two thousand one. It it came out of the modding community from the original Age of Empires uh, Rise of Rome expansion. And they've, this team has been working on it ever since. And it's still going. It's, it's um, open source, uh, free to play, free to download and build yourself. Oh, awesome. Uh-huh. And then one of my favorite games of all time uh, that I've been playing, it's called Jagged Alliance 2. You control a team of mercenaries and 
for the longest time, you could only play it on Windows or through uh, through a VM. But there's there's a group who's got code for their own open source engine, and that's on GitHub, and it runs cross-platform. So I could play Jagged Alliance 2 on my Linux box. And this is called uh, Strachiatella. Uh, it's, it's some sort of vanilla ice cream with some chocolate sprinkled in. Um, <laughs> they, they claim that you can play the vanilla game with some of the chocolate being bug fixes sprinkled into it. Mm, that's funny. That's a, that's a good uh, play on words. <laughs> uh, and the last thing that I've got is the the Steam controller is going to have uh, kernel support, so that way you don't have to run um, uh, the Steam client or any sort of connector applications. You can just plug in your Steam controller and use it. This is set to be released um, on the Linux 4.18 kernel, so uh, probably sometime in the fall uh, for for Ubuntu and Fedora to pick it up. Nice. So how is the the Steam controller? The, Have you used it? Yeah, uh, the haptic feedback was weird at first, but it's it's pretty nice. I like it better than um, the Xbox controllers. It fits my hands. Then again, my hands are gigantic, and when the original Xbox came out, their uh, Beast controller or whatever it was called, I thought that was the most comfortable thing. Oh yeah. Um, but haptic feedback is uh, the sense of touch that you get from forces or vibrations or motion, but it comes back to you through the controller. It's mm. different than rumble mode on old video game controllers. Oh, it, is it? You, you would have to use one to, to like finally make it click. Yeah. Fine control of yeah. the, the feedback. That's cool. Very All cool. Right. Gaming on Linux. It's the year of the gaming on the Linux desktop. I believe it. <laughs> until, until they get Overwatch, my kids will continue on a Windows computer. <laughs> I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> they live to play that game. Very cool. I actually don't have any news, unless you want to talk about uh, uh, risk management for information systems. <laughs> That's what yes, I was, please. How, where does well, let's actually more specifically, where does Cisco fall on that category of hard coding passwords? Ooh, <laughs> that is definitely a risk. You don't let your uh, your admin interfaces for any of your Cisco touch the internet. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a, an important aspect. Uh, you know, I, I was commenting on this, so I don't know the details of the hack, uh, but Draytech was in the news for, they make really popular, uh, someone sent me a message about more about what Draytech is. I, I've, I've heard a lot of IT people mention them and ask me if I want to review them. They're a firewall, and it might, apparently their claim to flame uh, is, a claim to fame and now flame, <laughs> is they can boot up in about eight seconds from time you power on. So they power cycle really, really fast. So they're popular for corporate environments. What is That's, this? Uh, they're a firewall company uh, called Draytech. But they apparently had a zero day, and lots of people were saying, now, someone said it's not true. Someone said it is true, and it's probably, it could be just IT people misconfiguring it. That if you open the admin interface on the external side, which a lot of people do, so um, they're popular with like MSPs. So if you're an IT company, you want to manage your clients, you set up these Draytechs, they're fast, they're supported, and uh, you set up external access to them. But apparently if external access, someone found a way around the username password authentication. I'm not clear at all about the hack mm. other than a massive amount of people reporting it. And the company did quickly respond and have a blog post and do that. So we've got that fire, we've got that hack. Uh, then we have some other company. It was mentioned on Steve Gibson Security Now. He he rambled on about apparently this company um, sold firewalls to an ISP, and the ISP uh, distributed them. And the concept was, if you can picture this, did you listen to what he said? Yeah. People would set up, they left a telnet port open on both external and internal, and the concept was people would simply secure it. And if they mm. left it open, so it made it easy for you to secure. Because, you know people who run anything know how to just open Telnet and uh, Telnet in instead it's of not, username and password. It's not just a Telnet port that's open. It's, it's an admin. passwordless admin Telnet yeah. port. Yeah. My eyes are rolling out of my head <laughs> down the street right now. 
Yeah, I it's, know it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Uh, so, and then of course the Cisco hardcore patch. Which is the the firewall world just seems to be a mess. And uh, bleeping computer. If you, it's funny because if you start with the Cisco article, I'm, let's go, there's a whole list of all the other recent firewall hacks. You can just kind of follow the rabbit hole of these are a lot of firewall hacks. These all happened in the last thirty days. <laughs> just it's a lot to handle sometimes. Um, Firewalls are, you know, it's not that I'm necessarily crapping on Cisco, uh, other than I don't know how that passed code review, um, but it also comes down to sometimes, and someone said this, and I think I slightly do agree with it, is some of the best firewalls are the ones you know how to configure, because um, I know someone who doesn't really care much for PFSense, they like another firewall, and but it's because they've been using them in a corporate environment, and they're very, very familiar with configuring them. So some... in. There's a great Reddit read about a, a, the system nightmare from hell of how they got hacked, and it was because they brought a new system in. He wanted to change the firewall, something he was familiar with. They said no, um, and he ended up accidentally misconfiguring and letting a back door open in the firewall because he didn't understand how the rule sets worked. And the uh, system in who doesn't understand the product will definitely cause a security problem, even if it's a secure firewall. So these are things to think about that, you know, you have to have system ins that are familiar with the firewall. So it's not to say that, you know, like you said with Cisco, you can still run Cisco and still be secure because it was a hard-coded password on the admin interface. But if I'm willing to bet it, a corporate environment, because Tony works in a very secure environment, that the admin interface couldn't be accessed from, oh, I see any random desktop. Right. <laughs> so once again, proper security mitigation has helped mitigate some of these issues so you don't leave your firewall open on your public network even the admin face not just the WAN side but the LAN side is still locked down and only with ACLs and things like that so it comes down to proper configuration it goes a long long way oh yeah because <laughs> you're like it's a problem but we can fix it we can patch it there was no real representative risk and we have a box that, a jump box that logs everything so we can actually audit and see whether or not this ever was exploited in my environment and keep my compliance and We'll move on from that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I think that's all we have for the news then. Pretty much. Yeah. All right. Do we have music? Mm, music? You know, my alarm didn't go off this morning. You think I have music ready? Can we play the Yanny and Laurel <laughs> clip? Oh, that yeah. That actually seems relevant. <laughs> Yanny via... All we hear is Linux. Yep. That's. I'm sure if you there's a YouTube video for it. Where did, where yeah. is the original? Where, who did that? This is this is the... actually. I saw something yesterday morning about that. There was this. I think she's. It was a freshman, so I don't know if it was high school or college. Was doing some kind of project on her computer, and uh, the part of the project was it was reading off uh, what she was typing in. So this computer voice was reading it off, and when she typed in Laurel, she heard Yanny. She's like, that doesn't sound right. And she looks down. And then she's like, wow, there's got to be other people that, you know, this is happening to and shared it. And then it got shared and shared and shared. It, and it is so fascinating of what goes viral on the Internet. It is. Did you know there's a group of people uh, and there's a TED talk about this at YouTube? Their entire job is to search what goes viral and why. And their TED talk is actually very interesting because they talk about one of the things they show in it is like such a great demo. They show a bunch of people doing the wave, like in a crowd, in a stadium. And he talks about how it takes a starter how it takes a person to start it, but then the followers that start and how all these people start doing it. So they actually completely unrelated to YouTube have studied how humans interact to better understand how uh, something goes viral and why they share it or why they don't. And they, there's, there's such a crazy formula to it. And there's still not a formula that they're trying to do, but there's, it's fascinating people are looking at it, why, why groups of humans do something. <laughs> right. Someone other than Cambridge Analytica is looking at it. That's what matters. <laughs> <laughs> Because they certainly did a lot of study in that. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's been a, a cluster over there with Facebook. Uh, what did they found like two or three more companies of doing the same thing and, and blocking them? Here, here's how it goes. Their stock is up. Shareholders are happy. User base is up. And they launched a dating app. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure th th there's also some, uh, the goldfish time span of human attention uh, has proven to be completely operating fine. <laughs> Just, exactly. we've already forgotten. That was last week's news. I'm sure there's some absurd tweet that someone's upset about. There is something else going on. And we have now moved on from, oh, that's okay. They're sliming up all of our data. <laughs> yep. All right. So here, let's try this. Turn up the volume. Laurel. 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 I hear 
Linux. 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 Do you actually hear Annie when you hear that? You know, here I don't. I hear Laurel. Okay. Uh, and but when my wife played it off of her iPhone, I heard. I didn't hear either of them. I heard uh, Yuri. Linux. Yeah, Linux. <laughs> no, but I, I, I heard nothing, not even close, because it was, I don't know if it was the speakers on her phone or what, but. I, I heard a lower quality version. I'm like, what do you kids listen to? And my kids, of course, they, they apparently fall victim to things that are trending, so. Yeah. Well, they're kids. <laughs> they're kids. That's like, they're looking for trends. They're finding themselves. They're 11, so. That's <laughs> right. That happens. All right. So. Uh, I guess we've come to the end. Yep. Uh, and so you've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This was episode 275. Five. 275. Episode 275. Uh, I heard Linux. I heard Linux. Yep. That's right. This is Tony Bemis. Philip Parada. And Tom Lawrence. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>